talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Will Erskine is in the cloud. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Hey, Leaf fans, how are you feeling today? Is it time oh. for Pyramid Power? Hey! Here's hey. Gold! Hey. Get out of here! Get, get, get out of here! Enough of that. Get your little arse out of this room. That attitude. What are you, an American? Uh, that was kind of funny, actually, on more than one front. Uh, of course, there is a lot of, uh, there's a lot of friction in this house right now with Boston fans and Toronto fans and, and what have you. And maybe a little dash of puberty there, too. All right, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Weber behind the board. Uh, Dave and Diana in the newsroom. There's really not a lot going on other than, uh, the Prime Minister channeling his father which was kind of odd yesterday. In the uh, House of Commons, during question period, it got kind of heated, as it always, uh, well, as it does. That's just the way it is. Uh, them is politics, as they say. And so, uh, the, you know, it got going back and forth, and, and, and I guess this whole thing started with uh, there was an exchange between a conservative MP, uh, Carrie Lynn Finlay, and they were there was the issue was that there was a military plane flying over the protests uh in ottawa during the freedom convoy way back in the winter and you know well it's emergencies act right and so they're 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 pressing the prime minister on what this is all about and 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 what is going on and and like why are you like flying these planes over this convoy and then the prime minister said no no it was just uh routine uh routine monitoring routine uh procedure uh routine uh, just maneuvers that they do i guess part of their what they do and so when the the uh the opposition kept pressing trudeau on this and and it's i, I find it I, I find it amusing when uh the sunny ways disposition uh turns into the angry teacher and the prime minister was being pressed on on this and and saying like w- was there a plane was there not a plane what was the reason for the plane was it uh you know training exercises uh is it really training exercises why is this going on coincidence and the prime minister responded that questioning uh that her question was quote dangerously close to misinformation and disinformation uh designed to ramp uh gin up fears and conspiracy theories which uh and then he denied that a special forces unit was monitoring the protest around parliament hill uh and that they were engaged in a previously scheduled uh training exercise so uh, nothing to see here folks uh, it's just a training exercise. But what I find fascinating about this prime minister is that whenever you question him on anything and he's backed into a corner, he accuses you of things. He's call, he calls you anti-things. He accuses you of speaking misinformation or disinformation or, or, or fear-mongering and all this other such. 
And, and he does this all the time. He's a very divisive man. And he divides people over climate change. He divides people over gender. He divides people over vaccination when there's 90% of the people already vaccinated. So it, it's not that anybody's necessarily disagreeing. or Sorry, they are disagreeing, not with the issue, but with the way he handles things. And if you question him, you're an anti-vaxxer, you're an anti-climate changer, you're a denier, you're this, you're that, you're the whatever. And, I, you know, I find it fascinating that because you don't agree with him, then you're on the extreme and 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 there's no common denominator. You're out. And it, it's he brought up a, a clip of his uh, a sentence that his father said back in 1971. This is uh, Pierre Trudeau talking. And this was the infamous fuddle duddle uh, issue. And uh, and obviously it was Lincoln and it was Lincoln Alexander that called the prime minister out on this. And here's what the Prime Minister of the day, uh, Pierre Trudeau, had to say in 1971. These guys want to read lips and they want to say, see something, you know, you know that's their problem. I think they're very sensitive. Well, they, they, they come in the house and they make all kinds of accusations. And because I smile at them in derision, they, they come stomping out and, what, go crying to Mama or to television that they've been insulted or something? Of course, this is allegedly the Prime Minister... Uh, swore during this questioning by conservative MP Karen Lee, uh, Carrie Lynn Finley and dropped an F-bomb. That's the allegation. Uh, here's the famous line from Prime Minister Trudeau back in 1971. What were you thinking when you moved your lips? What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say fuddle-duddle or something like that? God, you so uh, a lot of parallels here, and the prime minister has uh, avoided trying to be compared to his father, uh, but now is channeling him and using the same line. So when the prime minister was accused of swearing uh, in parliament yesterday over this flyover, uh, here's what Justin Trudeau, our current prime minister, had to say. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say you move your lips in a particular way? Okay, all right. So uh, there you have it. Fascinating. And, you know, on a slow, uh, slow news day, th- this is obviously what we're talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, going all these years without uttering anything or making reference, too much reference to his father, uh, quotes him when, in fact, uh, he's uh, asked to explain what he said in the House to MP Car- uh, Carrie Lynn Finley when being pressed on the flyover over the uh, the Ottawa Freedom Protest Convoy or whatever it was way back uh, in uh, in the wintertime. So fascinating. We'll see where that goes. I'm sure it's nowhere and just fodder for people like me. If you've got a, po- uh, a pooch, I said poo, but that's coming. If you've got a, uh, a pooch or a dog, and many people got uh, pets over the course of the uh, global pandemic, we were fortunate enough to get one just before. Uh, about a year before or so. But, um, uh, you know, uh, well, I was going to say, especially if you're a bigger dog, but it doesn't matter how big these dogs are. We got a larger one, supposed to be about 40 or 50 pounds, and now I think he's working on about 85. And, you know, sometimes I'm out in the backyard and I'm thinking, this animal is pooping more than a human being, including me. Uh, so as the snow starts to melt, and we're finding this right now, uh, perhaps a few weeks overdue, that uh, the backyard's kind of a mess. And, you know, no matter how much the kids say, yeah, 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 get the dog, we'll do that, we'll do that, it, you know, it, some, you know what happens. So, uh, th- uh, you know, our next guest certainly isn't the first to do this, but uh, certainly uh, an interesting uh, avenue. And as we all have pets, uh, we all need cleanup. Well, 
Enter in the Poo Crew. Let's introduce you to Michaela Christchu. She is founder of Poo Crew, and yes, they do the stooping and scooping for you. Michaela, how are you? I'm good. How are you? Good. When did this all start for you? Um, this was started maybe about a month ago. I started this one. Um, I just posted an ad online, and uh, lots of people responded to it. So, <laughs> you, you said this one. So you've done this before. I have another business, yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. So, but it's not related, to, or is it related to Poo Crew? No, not this one. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so you found the opportunity to do this during the pandemic. Is it something about the pandemic that uh, that, that that has allowed this business to uh, to take off, or is it just uh, a need that was there before and after? Um, I think it's kind of a mix of both. I was um, in university at the beginning of the pandemic. And I just decided that the online learning wasn't really my thing. So Mm. um, like I said, I have another business and then I took this one on as well because I really just want to help people and I like helping people. So I thought if I could, you know, open something else up that could help everybody of all ages, then why not? Lots of ways to help people. How'd you come up with uh, stooping and scooping? Um, well, I've, I've seen it before online as well, but I, uh, I live in Caledonia, so there's, um, a lot of, you know, older people, people Mm. have retired and stuff like that. So, you know, I know they need the help and I, I've seen the posts saying, you know, looking for somebody to help with this or with that. So I want to be the one to help those people. Wow. You know, I never even thought about that, but you bring up a valid point, especially those who uh, are, are older and such may not want to get out and do this. So uh, how do you charge? How does this work? Um, so typically, like I just look at the yard size and I try and charge per dog. Um, but I also take into consideration, um, obviously, there's pensions, people, you know, they're not working yeah. or just getting back to work because of COVID and stuff like that. So we do take that into consideration with our pricing as well. We want to fit into people's budgets so you know if this person can only afford so much for this week then you know we'll still do it no matter what um typically it starts at you know twenty dollars a dog and maybe add five to ten for another dog and um you you said you talked about seniors which obviously obviously seems like a great idea but who are the customers who who use your service yeah, so we have um, lots of seniors. We also have um, like university students, um, parents who are just getting back to work because of the pandemic and stuff like that. You know, people who aren't home as much or when they get home, they just want to make dinner and relax. So it's really a mix of everybody. And you talk about multiple dogs. Is it usually people who have multiple dogs that are calling you? Um, yeah, I th- yeah, I think it's more people who have multiple than just the one. And so how how has the business increased over the amount of time that you've been doing it? Are you surprised you, you just did this thinking, well, we'll see what happens. And now it's turned into a, a business. How busy are you? Um, yeah, I would say it's pretty busy. It's picking up more now. Like you said, the snow is melting. People are surprised to see what's underneath. So, um, yeah, I would say it's busier now. And, you know, I get messages like every day, all the time. And, um, yeah, so it's, it's pretty busy. <laughs> Tools required. How do you, um, what, what sort of stuff do you need? How do you, how do you, <laughs> when you show up for work, what, what's it like? <laughs> well, I have the, the classic, just the bags and the gloves. I also have yeah. a little, uh, 
scooping device as well. <laughs> so is there anything that you know that you could pass on to, you know, the weekend warrior? I mean, is there a good way to go about doing this? Is there a secret? Um, I don't know. I wouldn't say there's a secret. Just, uh, I don't know, you want to help somebody, j- just do it. Take the opportunity. <laughs> and uh, on any given day, how much, like, you know, we got a dog that's like 85 pounds, and, man, it's amazing what comes out of that thing in a week. Uh, you must, like, what do you do with all of it? You must have a ton of stuff at the end of the day, a ton of uh, poop. Yeah. Yeah, I have, um, I invested in a special type of bin that sits in the garage for it. So. And is there any problems in, in getting that disposed of? Anything special there? Uh, no, it's it's been pretty good so far, actually. <laughs> All right. So uh, if people want to get a hold of you, Michaela, and uh, use your services, how do we get a hold of you? Um, I would say my phone number is the best. <laughs> All right. Uh, are you online? Uh, yes, I am. All right, so Facebook. just look. All right, so look up the Pooh Crew online, and you'll get all the details. Michaela Christchu is with us, uh, innovative student who's uh, found a uh, found a, a niche and catering to it. Michaela, best of luck with all this moving forward. Thank you. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. No doubt you saw the uh, the great clip at the uh, at the Blue Jays game. Uh, the other day, and and you know, it's uh, it's odd that, that this situation happened when we had uh, yesterday just a, a discussion about empathy and 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 where we are at this stage in the global pandemic. Um, obviously, a uh, a ball hit into the crowd by uh, Aaron Judge, New York Yankee, uh, goes up into the stands. Blue Jay fan grabs it and then looks immediately at a little boy right behind him who's wearing an Aaron Judge. Um, New York Yankees shirt and such, and gives the kid the ball. Immediately, the kid just bursts into tears, hugs the guy, and it's just, it's a beautiful moment. And then uh, the following day, Aaron Judge uh, brings them down, both of them, both families, down to uh, the dugout, signs the ball, and, and is just an incredible person. And it's amazing that, you know, this kind of story gets this much attention now as if it's such an anomaly. Let's bring in Alyssa Freeman, PR and pop culture expert. She is with us now. Alyssa, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Uh, yes, and hope you're well too, Scott. Your thoughts on this moment. Uh, again, we had uh, experts on yesterday just talking about how empathy has gone down post-pandemic. Nothing like, you know, the pots and the pans banging at 7 o'clock on the front porch. That's out the window now. Uh, but yet we see this, and it, it sort of, uh, y- you know, confirms our faith in humanity. Oh, my goodness. We need to see more of this, Scott. And you're right. Empathy has gone down. Everybody's angry. Everybody's mean. Everybody thinks that, you know, the slightest little uh, indiscretion, they can turn and and yell at you or honk at you or whatever. It's just really crazy. And, you know, what I've been noticing on the news lately on all forms is that there has been um, a lot of empathy and empathy items and try sort of feel good items and they're coming in from Mm. all over the country and at first i'm looking at the news lineup and thinking what why am i hearing about this i don't know fishing fundraiser that's out west and then i'm thinking you know what i think that the, the the news the media itself is trying to change the narrative and create uh sort of uh more resonance among things 
that have good news. I, I don't think I'm wrong on this. Uh, have you been seeing the same thing? I agree. I think people are just fried. I mean, including those that, uh, those of us that are in it. You know, you're just you're tired of all of this, and now we're heading into you know, and you you look at an election. You you look at the the uh, the pandemic, how long it took to get through that, and then we went into the convoy stuff, and then it was into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And, you know, I, I mean, now we're heading into an election. And I mean, how many people are paying attention to that? And I just think people are just overloaded. I think it's just like goo dripping out the ears. Ears. And I think I'm not sure people are less empathetic. I just don't think they're consciously thinking about it. And as a result, are just dropping the ball. I also think that, you know, you hear more and more often, especially during the pandemic, during the height of the waves, that people were saying, I can't turn on the news anymore. Yeah. I get that. But if you're in the news business and you're selling advertising in the news business, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. So I think that part of this might be eyeball driven and not only, you know, yes, reporting on the news and the stuff that you want to hear. But um, I think that they're trying to put this within the narrative in order to bring people back so they can hear about the good things. And they're giving it interesting terms, like they're calling it maybe something like uh, shortcuts or, you know, uh, you know, Toronto the good or, you know, now for something happy. You know, I, I don't know, but they're trying to yeah. make cute little monikers about it. And I'm here for it. Do you think audiences have spoke up about this? Do you think, or, or is this just society where we all are right now? I think that, you know, when it comes to news, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So I do think that audiences have spoken up. And I do think that they've spoken up on several mediums, especially social media. And I know that most or- news organizations do keep track of that stuff. So when you see it more often than not, and when you see things like, I just can't listen to the news anymore, you have to act on it. And I think that this is part of the solution. You know, I can think of the abortion issue that came out of the United States the other day when they took a giant step backwards. And I mean, we could waste all of our time talking about that. Um, you know, they got to get they've, they've got to get a handle on that sort of thing. But then it came up here and everybody's that da 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 da. And what I noticed, Alyssa, I'm old enough to remember every single election that we have, whether it's provincial or provincial or federal, this issue comes up again from the left and we end up in the same place. And we all know the Canadian system is vastly different from the American and just generally we think differently. But yet here it comes, here it comes, here it comes. Look, and you know, find the one conservative or two or three that that have, uh, you know, pro-life views or whatever. And we end up in the same place. Yeah, I know, but I think that the conservatives don't do enough to control that narrative. If it was, mm-hmm. if, it, if it's one, two, or three that are well known to already stand behind that issue, then fine. But you know, when Candace Bergen comes out and says no conservative is going to talk about this issue, period. Well, okay. Yeah, but you know what that is? Okay, there's two reasons that can happen. Number one, exactly what everybody's assuming because they're all the devil. Or it could be no matter what any conservative says about this, you know, somebody from the left is going to take it and twist it around. And there's no way we can we can even uh, present ourselves here. So, again, so they decided to say nothing. And then that becomes an issue. I mean, again, we we go through this every single election. Every time they bring up abortion, abortion, abortion. It's like, my God, I I lived through the 70s. 
Oh, we, the only reason we go through this every election is that because the opposition doesn't provide a concrete answer. All mm. they say is non-answer. So you can say non-answer for one reason, which is the one you gave, that whatever they say, you know, will be sort of taken by the left and misconstrued and, and regurgitated and maybe not the most optimal way for the party. Or you can just say an answer. It doesn't have to be a diatribe. It could be two Well, they've already answers. said that, that this isn't an issue for us. Yes, that person over there can think all he wants. This is not an issue for the party. They've said that I'm both professionally. That's an easy way out, Scott. Easy way out in terms of, like, listen, from my point of view. Has anything changed, though? I mean, are we seeing anything change? I mean, is there all of a sudden this mad dash to get uh, uh, abortion made illegal again or or to take it away? I mean, we're just not seeing. There's no really unequivocal answer that says we will not support this. All we're saying, all, and, and it's an easy answer to give. It's just as easy to say, well, that's not our issue. But that's not our issue, quote unquote, is a non-answer, Scott. It doesn't give the average person who cares about this issue enough, you know, sense or confidence that the conservatives, you know, stand behind it or they don't stand behind it. I've seen this often enough to know. And that's why this happens time and time again, as you say, in every single election cycle, that when the conservatives answer a question andrew Shear had to had to endure this you could hear when they asked him questions about things he didn't want to answer and basically but yeah but there's a there's a good there's a good there's an interesting point right there so obviously andrew Shear has his own beliefs whatever and you know not my favorite person either in that respect um but that doesn't mean he's going to turn his party that way just because he doesn't believe in it and again i asked him right on the show why aren't you going to march in the in pride parade and you can see the election be lost right there as many talk show hosts did but again can't he have his opinion without fear that it's going to become law no because if he's the representative of the party his opinion is equivalent to the party's opinion yeah Scott, okay so now we're talking twitter account it's like you're going to be a president uh, prime ministerial candidate and having a twitter account and saying the these opinions are not reflective of my party but just of my own I, you know there's a very very thin line there and actually there is no line so uh, what, what becomes embarrassing for the Conservative Party is that when they ask those crunchy questions, and listen, it's not even necessarily the candidate. It's the machine behind him that yeah. is guiding him in terms of his answers. So we all know that the Conservative Party has to decide who they are. Everybody says it. They know it. You know, they've got a leadership convention coming up in September. Let's see what happens. We didn't even get to talk about Fuddle Duddle. Oh, I have a button that says Fuddle Duddle. We can do it another time. <laughs> I used to have a t-shirt as a kid a long time Didn't ago. Did we all? Did uh, we all? With a little hair with this. Yeah, it's funny. All right. Thank you, Alyssa Freeman, as always, PR and pop culture expert. Be well. And you too, Scott. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CXML. We talked about this a little earlier on, and tonight the Westdale Theater will host uh, Hamilton Helps Ukraine. All of the proceeds from the evening, music, film, conversation, will support Canada Ukraine Foundation and its humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. It all starts at uh, 7 o'clock. Diana Weeks is going to be there from the newsroom to cover this, and of course you'll hear lots of reports tomorrow on Good Morning Hamilton with Rick Zampern uh, that uh, Diana uh, collects today. So going to be a great night and a great cause, and let's Let's bring in Neil Miller, owner of the Westdale, and with us now. Neil, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I'm good, Scott. How are you? Tell us about, I'm doing fine, thank you. Tell us about this event and, and where, where the idea came from again. 
Yeah, well, the idea came from all of us are sitting at home watching this terrible news unfold on our devices and our screens, and we thought, well, what can we do? And, uh, you know, we know how to put on a show, and we also know how to connect to people in the community. So we reached out to the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress of Hamilton, and we asked them what we could do to help. So we offered up our space. And uh, the fine team over there planned a really informative night of, uh, of conversation, of art, music, and a film. So that's where it all came about, just Hamiltonians looking for something they can do to uh, help with the atrocities that are happening overseas. And I made this mistake again. It's the Ukraine Congress of Canada that is uh, helping you out with this, that's organizing this. Yeah, that's the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress of Hamilton is the one who's planned and executing okay. the event with us all of the proceeds though go to the canada ukraine foundation okay so uh tell us about the uh, the agenda what's what's it like what's this event going to include yeah so the doors open at 6 p.m there are still tickets left uh we have an exhibit up in our art lounge uh, a ukrainian canadian tapestry and it really tells uh it's a series of banners and artwork that it, it's an exhibition really of the history of ukrainians in our city um, there's going to be music, uh, Ukrainian music on the accordion. Uh, we're going to sing some Ukrainian music with the crowd. And then we're going to screen a movie called Hunger for Truth, the Rhea Kleiman story. Uh, that's really the center of the evening. Um, and it's, uh, it's a movie about um, Kleiman. So she traversed the Soviet heartland in 1932. She witnessed a horrible crime. And really, that's where the movie takes us. It's a documentary. Um, so we're going to screen that, and then we'll have a speaker. Uh, the president of the Ukrainian Youth Association will get up and answer questions about the movie, and then answer our questions about what's happening in the in Ukraine right now. Um, so it's an informative evening. What was it like? The response from from patrons, and then the response from these uh, from these organizations when you asked them to be a part of this. Well, the organizations. I mean, their community is is in, in trouble, right? So they were, they were thankful. Um, and they're also just the most kind, um, hardworking group of people. You know, they're, they've been extraordinary in putting this whole event together. And as far as our community and our patrons, the response has been, again, extraordinary. Um, we've sold more tickets to this event than we have for anything since COVID hit. Um, and so that's really a testament to, to the community's response. And Neil, like you said, we've been all watching these images for, my goodness, how long has it been? I think we're up to day 70, this Russian invasion yeah. of Ukraine, and, and we all feel helpless. We, we feel, what can we do other than donate to organizations like this? Yeah, well, one of the best things you can do, and that's why theaters and art are so essential, is you can learn, you know, you can educate yourself and see different perspectives of what's happening. Not only can you donate to the cause, but you can come and learn and educate yourself so that you can... Uh, speak to other people about it. It'll be fascinating to to listen to the Q and A portion of this and what people yeah. are asking and the in the response. Yeah. So if people want to go, give us all the details. Yeah, go to thewestdale.ca. We still have uh, quite a handful of tickets left, um, and uh, it's right there on our homepage on our banner, and uh, or you can walk up. So we're at ten fourteen in the heart of ten fourteen King Street West in the heart of Westdale. So come on by tonight.
All right, tonight the Westdale Theater hosts uh, Hamilton Helps Ukraine, uh, music, uh, film, and conversation, and all, of course, to support the Canadian, or sorry, the Canada Ukraine Foundation and its efforts in Ukraine. It all starts at 7 o'clock. Uh, all you have to do is check social media under the Westdale. You'll find all the details. Neil Miller has been with us, owner of the Westdale. Neil, thanks for the time. Good luck with this tonight. Okay, thanks, Scott. Thanks for your it, support. We really appreciate it. I want to bring uh, Diana Weeks in here. We were talking just a moment ago with Neil Miller, owner of the Westdale. Uh, the Westdale uh, Theater will host Hamilton Helps Ukraine tonight. All of the proceeds from the evening of music, film, and conversation support the Canadian, or sorry, the Canada Ukraine Foundation and its humanitarian efforts in Ukraine. It all starts at seven o'clock, and Diana Weeks is going to be there covering it for CHML. So you'll hear this tomorrow on Good Morning America, or sorry, Good Morning Hamilton with. Uh, with Rick Zamprin. Diana, it's amazing how much interest this has generated in the city. People want to help, but they just don't know how. Yeah, Scott. I, I mean, I feel like it's something that um, that really can get a lot of people out. I know there's been several initiatives throughout Hamilton since, you know, the war began. And uh, it's great to see a lot of people going out to support it. I think tonight will be a good night for people to kind of network, talk to each other. It'll be more of a social event. Uh, but obviously, they'll be highlighting, um, you know, the grave atrocities that are taking place as well. So. I think it'll be a fascinating to listen to the Q&A portion of this as people ask questions. I agree. And I mean, uh, the documentary um, that's screening Hunger for Truth, the Rhea Kleiman story, I mean, as a journalist, I, I found this very interesting as well. Of course, um, you know, just being on the heels of World Press Freedom Day and, uh, you know, she obviously, you know, traversed the Soviet area in the 16, er, 16 in 1932. Um, so, you know, during that time and obviously, you know, the pre- the press suppression is still going on. Um, with the Kremlin. So, I mean, it's it's interesting to see how that, that will play out with, um, you know, a journalist perspective on that and just getting the, the dialogue started around that as well. I, I think we've all been just uh, just astounded with the 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 courage and, and the the backbone of the Ukraine people, uh, President Zelensky. And and as you learn more about the history of Ukraine and Russia and such, it's fearful because and you can see why history is repeating itself here. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, my husband and I, we watched uh, the documentary Chernobyl, which is on HBO. And if Mm. you haven't seen that, it's quite eye opening. It was very, very well done. And we were watching it, you know, while this was going on in Ukraine, this war right now. And we were saying, oh, my God, the same stuff is still happening. You know, the Russians trying to cover it up and just these lies and obsession with, uh, you know, how you look on the world stage. It doesn't matter, you know, what's going on. And so um, there's a lot of parallels that are still unfortunately happening today and it's mind-boggling that it's still going on and you know it's just I I can't believe what these folks have been through it's bizarre my mother went through World War two and 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 before she passed away was commenting on this because this was happening just prior to her passing and said how much this reminded her of how Europe was occupied during the war and it was bizarre to see the footage of Russian tanks Going across farmers' fields and through, I don't know, sheds and and fences. It's like, if this was black and white, you'd swear it was 1945. I know, I know. It's it's unreal. I mean, uh, also my husband's family... um 
they they're Ukrainian. I mean, his grandparents came over and they fled the war. And, um, you know, just hearing some of the stories from his grandmother who, you know, lived during yeah. that time and, you know, with what she had to deal with with the Russians. And um, so it is heartbreaking to to read some of those stories of, of people who lived during that time, you know, definitely a different perspective. I mean, myself, I've never, you know, I've had the pleasure of not living through a war on my home home turf. So, I mean, you know, you just got to be grateful for what we have. And you know, pray for these people. <laughs> Give us the details again of the night tonight. Yeah, so it's, I believe the doors open at 6 at the Westdale, um, and then the event event starts at 7 p.m. So it's going to be uh, a fundraiser to support the Ukrainian Humanitarian Appeal, and it's presented by the Ukrainian-Canadian Congress of Hamilton, which I know you've had on your show several times, Scott. Um, there's going to be speakers with the Ukrainian Youth Association, and then they're going to be screening the documentary called Hunger for Truth, the Rhea Kleiman story, and it's about journalist Rhea Kleiman, who tra- to traverse the Soviet heartland in 1932, witnessed a horrible crime, one that the Soviet authorities would try to hide for more than 50 years. So, All right. Yeah. There you go. And Diana Weeks is going to be there tonight. So if you can't make it and hoping you can, uh, by all means, listen to uh, Good Morning Hamilton tomorrow with Rick Zampern, and she'll have clips and such uh, for the show tomorrow. Uh, Diana, thanks so much for sharing the story. Good luck tonight. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Scott. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say fuddle-duddle? What, 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 what do you say? Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Let's bring in Christian Leprac, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University. University fellow at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Lots to talk about uh, as not only Ukraine, but uh, this uh, f- this alleged fuddle duddle incident, which was really about a flyover, a CAF flyover, uh, which the Prime Minister now says is just a typical maneuver, regular scheduled uh, maneuvers. Let's bring in Christian now. Christian, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. Yeah, good afternoon, Scott. Indeed. Uh, let's get uh, off the top. There's obviously lots going around about uh, allegedly the prime minister dropping the F-bomb in, in parliament in the House of Commons and then obviously uh, channeling back his father and fuddle-duddle and all this. But this started with uh, questioning and question period. It got pretty heated about a, a, a flyover or a maneuver over, a maneuver over uh, by a military plane over the uh, Freedom Convoy back in the winter. Is there anything you can tell us about that flight or... Was it scheduled? Was it this? Was it that? Is there any story here? Yeah, so I think it's interesting that the Prime Minister took that question. Uh, That to me suggests that there might be more behind this than meets the eye, because this would be a question either for the Minister of National Defense, uh, since uh, D&D and Kenya Armed Forces assets belong to the minister, and the minister is responsible for that under the constitutional principle of responsible government, uh, or possibly the Minister of Public Safety, since this pertains to a matter of domestic intelligence. So um, would, would it be common so for... a question for one of his ministers. I, I'm sorry, Christian, you cut out a little bit there. Can you just mention the last part of your answer again? Yeah, so why would the Prime Minister take a question that is really fundamentally directed at his Minister of Public Safety or his Minister of National Defense? Because if it's an intelligence matter, domestic intelligence matter, then it's a matter for uh, uh, for the Minister of Public Safety. If it's a matter of the use of Canadian Armed Forces assets and the legal and constitutional use of those assets, 
then it's a question for the Minister of the, uh, uh, who's responsible for the Canadian Armed Forces, so the Minister of National Defence. So this is where the puzzle for me lies. Why would the Prime Minister take this question to begin with? Uh, the, the, the legal and constitutional constraints are very clear. The Canadian Armed Forces cannot uh, collect evidence, cannot collect intelligence domestically on Canadians, um, and the Minister would have to have obtained a warrant uh, and the Canadian Armed Forces would only be able to assist under their mandate uh, to assist uh, uh, law enforcement in uh, the legal conduct of law enforcement activities. Uh, so that raises the question whether the uh, government of Canada obtains such a warrant or an order in council under the Emergencies Act to solicit uh, the intelligence uh, assistance of the Canadian Armed Forces uh, during uh, the illegal occupation of Ottawa. Um, so I think there may be uh, there may be a, a deeper question to be asked here about uh, whether a warrant was issued or whether the government of Canada used the Emergencies Act uh, to direct the Canadian Armed Forces to collect domestic intelligence, um, because normally Canadian Armed Forces would be strictly prohibited from doing so. Uh, the Prime Minister accused the opposition of trying to spread misinformation, and then it got heated from there uh, and said this was previously scheduled maneuvers. Is is that possible? Yeah, I mean, so this is, of course, uh, is an excuse that you can use that. Uh, uh, but look, the Canadian Armed Forces aren't in the habit of conducting maneuvers over densely populated urban centers in Canada mm. um, under regular times. And they wouldn't be conducting maneuvers simply for the uh, sake of it when there's already a major national security crisis underway uh, in that particular municipality. So I think that's a bit of a cheap shot uh, in terms of trying to deflect from uh, from the actual question here. The actual question is... Uh, the uh, legal use of the assets of the Canadian Armed Forces was a warrant issued by a judge uh, based on the request of the Minister of Public Safety um, and the Minister of uh, National Defence uh, authorize and was in the know of the use of Canadian Armed Forces intelligence assets um, and what can the Prime Minister do to reassure Canadians that any request the government would have made um, would have been a legal request. I think the concern is under the Emergencies Act, the government would be able to solicit uh, the assistance of the Canadian Armed Forces without possibly obtaining a warrant. And if the Canadian Government of Canada did so and circumvent the judicial process, that would be a major problem. Will the Defence Minister comment on this or is it, this going to go away? Well, I would have assumed that if this is a secondary matter and everything was in order in terms of the procedures, uh, and this would have been a routine uh, um, uh, routine flight by the Canadian Armed Forces, then I would have assumed that the Minister of National Defence would be taking that question. Uh, so this is why I'm puzzled that the Prime Minister would take this question, which suggests to me that uh, the government is focused on managing the message on this particular uh, issue. So I do believe that uh, this probably warrants further probing. Uh, as you know, I have previously called for Royal Commission into what transpired under the illegal occupation of Ottawa. Um, and I think the government would prefer not to provide answers to precisely these sorts of questions and what measures it took under the Emergencies Act um, because suspending the constitutional liberties uh, potentially of Canadians, the Emergencies Act would have given the government the power uh, to enlist the Canadian Armed Forces for the purpose for which the opposition is asking questions. All right, let's talk uh, about the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, we're hearing out of Russia that the more fortification Ukraine gets from the West, this is just uh, ramping up World War III. Uh, your take on where we are right now and the weaponry that's arriving there. 
Yeah, I'm a little worried about uh, the escalating rhetoric, in particular by the United States. Uh, like the the rhetoric has been, I think, not has been ill-advised. Uh, for instance, weakening Russia and so forth. I mean, the the, the there's two objectives here. One is um, we need to ensure that the Ukrainians can keep on fighting as long as they have the will to fight. And the other is we need to help the Ukrainians negotiate whenever the Ukrainians believe that the time has come to do so. Um, I believe that the American rhetoric is increasingly feeding into the Russian narrative that hmm. this is a conflict between Putin and the West, Putin and NATO, uh, and Putin and the United States, whereas it's in Canada's interest to support the rhetoric that this is really a conflict between Putin and the rest of the world. And so I'm worried about if we draw all these red lines that this is going to lead to mission creep, uh, it's going to lead to, uh, to overreach, it's going to lead to unintended consequences, and it's going to end up disconnecting the means from the end in this particular conflict. And so it's important that we retain a clear sovereign foreign policy position on this particular matter, uh, precisely because I think um, much of the, uh, um, at least the, the rhetoric coming out of uh, the Biden administration has been terribly ill-advised. Christian Leprac with us, professor at both the Royal Military College of Canada and Queen's University and fellow at the McDonald laurier Institute. Christian, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Always a pleasure. Have a great afternoon. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Lots of chatter uh, south of the border in regard to Roe versus Wade, and it's just amazing to watch uh, America take a giant step backwards that it seems to be doing at this point. Uh, what will happen moving forward? Is this a done deal? And how do we view it on this side of the border? Let's bring in Daphne Gilbert, professor specializing in Canadian and U.S. criminal constitutional law and advanced sexual assault law with the University of Ottawa and is with us now. Daphne, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I'm doing great. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, your thoughts on where we are uh, with the United States and this obviously leaked draft and such. Uh, is it just a matter of time before some case makes it before this Supreme Court and they rule as this draft suggests and then the states just start falling like dominoes? Uh, I think this draft is exactly what is going to happen when they release their final decision in June. I, I don't see them resiling from this position. They may uh, change some of the language because I have to admit the decision is quite vicious in how it's written and so critical of Roe v. Wade and so critical of the court that decided that case some 50 years ago. And so I could imagine them uh, putting a bit of a gloss on the language. But in substance, I think we're looking at Roe v. Wade being overruled and abortion being banned in about half of the United States. Uh, we're seeing that I think the numbers are about 70 percent of Americans just want to move on. They want it to stay the way that it is. Uh, is will public backlash matter? The only way that public backlash will matter is in the states that have enacted these abortion bans that will be triggered automatically when Roe v. Wade is is overruled. So there are 10 states that have laws on the books right now that have already been passed that will come into effect immediately when Roe v. Wade is overruled. And then another 15 or so states have already said they're going to pass laws banning abortion. So the only way to change that reality is if the voters in those states elect legislators who repeal those bans. And the problem with that, and, and this is why we, we want to you know, have constitutional protection for fundamental human rights is that 
you know, you can have a repeal in one state that then comes back five years later when a different set of legislators come in. And, and we know that there are great patches of the United States in the South and Midwest that are very conservative and they're very content to have abortion bans. Um, obviously, many surprised that it is where it is, but we've certainly seen the change in the complexion of the Supreme Court down there. Is there any way it could be changed back or is that impossible until the complexion of the, cha- of the Supreme Court changes again? Well, first of all, that's right. You'd have to wait until the Supreme Mm. Court changes membership. And those three appointees that Donald Trump made are all young with and and the United States Supreme Court has no age limit, no retirement, no mandatory retirement. So those three members are are very young and will be on the court, presumably for 30, 40 more years. But the other problem is, is that ordinarily the court's position is that it does not change its mind. It does not go back on on past precedent. This case is unusual in in that it's overruling a a former Supreme Court decision. That's very rare. How many years before this is brought and the decision goes the other way? Because I don't think this settles anything. Well, it, it does actually settle a lot in the United States. I mean, constitutional law is, yeah, yeah. is a very slow-moving beast. And so when you make a constitutional law decision, it's pretty tough to go back on it. And what they're saying here is there's no constitutional protection for abortion. So for that to change, you know, you'd need a whole new court. And that's, that's decades away. Is there anything Biden can do? Joe Biden will try to pass a a federal law enshrining abortion rights, but that will immediately go back up to the Supreme Court, the same Mm. court that just overruled Roe v. Wade. And I I think it's unlikely that a law like that will withstand constitutional assessment by the same court that just decided there should be no constitutional protection for abortion. So what are the ramifications up here in Canada? Lots of haze being made up here. Uh, Are you concerned that this is going to happen here? My main concern is about the propaganda war and the fact that our anti-choice groups in Canada are heavily funded by American parent organizations. Mm. And we're going to see the reopening of the conversation here in Canada. We're going to see a lot of negative stereotyping of of women who get abortions and a lot of stigmatizing of that decision and uh, and there's the possibility that you'll see provinces who are sympathetic to the conservative position bringing in barriers to abortion access things like waiting periods or doctor referrals before you can get an abortion at a clinic those sorts of barriers i'm not concerned that we're going to see the sort of Uh, overall ban on abortion as they have in the United States, because that would be a federal government issue under the criminal law. And, and we don't have a government that any, any leader, whether it's the current prime minister or any of the other leaders uh, who are talking about recriminalizing abortion. Yeah. Nobody seems to be interested in this uh, at all up here. Um, uh, Interesting going backwards. That is Uh, what about Canadian attitudes? Because everybody says we're Canadian. We're not Americans. Um, and again, 70% down there, uh, don't like this happening. I'm not sure what the numbers are up here, but what about the Canadian attitude versus American? So we are even more in favor of, uh, protecting abortion rights than Americans mm-hmm. are. It's, it's well upwards of 85% of Canadians support abortion access. 
Uh, and already we know that there are movements to support the women in the south of the United States and the Midwest who are not going to have access to abortion to bring them to Canada. We have a, a minister who has said those women will be welcome to come here to have abortions. So I think you'll see a grassroots support movement here for whatever we can do to help the women in the United States. Um, and, and, you know, I'm, and I'm hoping that we will partner with organizations and, and, and do the best that we can. Do you anticipate many from America coming up here for the procedure? I don't anticipate them having to come all the way to Canada. I anticipate a lot of interstate travel for abortions. And I also anticipate that the states that ban abortion are going to try to clamp down on that, that they will try to ban people from traveling to obtain an abortion or facilitating the travel of someone to get an abortion. Uh, you know, there'll be creative ways to try to criminalize leaving your state uh, but but it will happen. We know that abortion happens whether it's legal or not. I mean, the one great um, great development in abortion in the last few years has been medical abortion, which is medication abortion. That can happen in the privacy of your own home. Right now in the United States, it is legal to mail the medication anywhere into the United States. So, you know, it's going to be tough to stop that from happening, but that's only useful if you're less than 12 weeks pregnant. So it doesn't help people who need more complicated care. That'll have to be by way of surgery. And we're just gonna see a lot of underground railroad action getting people into the states that will permit it. Man, the U.S. takes a giant step backwards thanks to the Supreme Court. Daphne Gilbert, a professor specializing in Canadian U.S. criminal law, constitutional law, advanced sexual assault law, University of Ottawa. Daphne, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. It doesn't uh, it doesn't take a, a brainiac to figure out lots of people are traveling again. And I remember during the pandemic, you'd look up and there was no planes unless they had like FedEx on the side. And now it's, you know, especially if you live under a flight plan, it's like every minute or so you see them going by. And then you, you see the images of uh, lineups. And I guess that's the message here. If you're going to travel, get ready to line up. Uh, whether it's for the passport to even start or once you get there to even get on the plane. Let's bring in Barry Choi. He's a travel expert and with us now. Barry, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm good. Thanks for having me. So it's uh, it's kind of a double-edged sword here, man. Not only are there jam-ups at the airport, but even to get your passport. Um, (laughs) It's like, is there a place you don't line up if you're traveling nowadays? You know what? I'll say this as someone who's been traveling recently. Once you've actually made it on the ground and cleared customs or out of the airport, there's no or there's fewer lineups once you're on the ground at whichever mm. destination you may end up at. So, yeah, admittedly, right now it's a bit of a pain to get to the destination. But if you haven't been on a vacation or a plane in the last few years, I guarantee you once you've arrived at your final destination, you will be very happy. That's when the shoulders will finally drop. Uh, let's start with the passport, uh, Barry. Issues mm-hmm. there, and, and and why is this? Could we not see this coming? I think we all saw this coming. Uh, just, you know, human nature is to be very lazy and to kind of be like, you know, I'll just keep waiting and see what happens. You, you know, you think about it, it's just common sense, right? Like, all of a sudden, the world's opening up. Everyone wants to take a vacation. So anyone who's had their passport about to expire or it has expired in the last few years is now scrambling to get it. 
And then they're all in shock. It's like, oh, why are offices just so busy? Because you're not the only one who wants to take a vacation anymore. And mm. I certainly uh, feel for the government of Canada, you know, the passport workers, you know, it doesn't matter how many staff they, they hire. It's still going to take them months for them to train. We were talking about security clearances here. Yeah. And then the backlog is just so huge. Like, like what do you expect? Like, like we got to give them some credit. They're, they're trying their best right now. And it's just not fair to blame them. So what would be the normal weight before the pandemic? And what's the average weight now? You know, the normal weight actually hasn't changed, right? When you think about it. So, so just to give some people some, some idea of what's going on is if you're going to apply in person, you must have travel uh, confirmed within 25 days. So you can't show up to the passport office waiting to get your passport before you're booking your travel. So you need to book your travel in advance to get your passport if you want it within 25 days. Um, you know, you can avoid that if you're mailing in your passport. You know, when I last checked uh, the government of Canada's website, they were saying mailing in passports takes about five weeks. I personally wouldn't trust that right now. I would probably double that time. So, you know, if you're thinking about uh, taking a trip in December, don't go to the office right now. Mail in your passport, you know, you've got about seven or eight months to get it. I like your chances more that way. So, so you know, that's what I would advise. But give yourself lots and lots of leeway. You were talking about the they want you to book the trip first. That's obviously so they can get the ones at the front of the line that have to travel sooner, quicker, rather than those that are traveling months from now. That's exactly it. And this rule was in place before the pandemic. Uh, has always existed because is like I said, a lot of people, what they'll do is they'll see like a last minute deal and only if they can get their passport renewed, then they'll book a flight. But basically, you know, it, it, it makes the lines even longer. I mean, think about yeah. the processing times even longer. And keep in mind, this is still like an office. If they're working nine to five and you're showing up at 430 and there's 200 people in front of you and you're wondering why you got turned away, like, again, <laughs> it should not surprise you. And so what's happening on the ground at the airports once you do get the passport? Well, you know, the airport, I would argue that you would think that the airport could see this coming because they can see how many planes are flying now. You know, obviously, during the start of the pandemic, your planes were landing into Pearson. I think now uh, they should have seen this coming. They should have been able to staff up appropriately. Uh, and, and, you know, the airport, I've read that they say that they typically would shift staff around you know if, if one area is busy at one part of the day then they would move staff to the other parts of the airport to deal with mm -hmm. the crowds but you know again like i was saying flight or travel has almost returned back to pre-demic levels so they should have adjusted things already uh, um you know one of the biggest complaints i read about is how you know if you're flying to u.s customs agents are not there on time or there's not enough uh, custom agents so that delays lines let me tell you, even before the pandemic, this was a problem. Uh, uh, so, you know, the obvious solution, like I was saying, is to staff up. But if they weren't doing it before the pandemic, uh, they're clearly not doing it now. So it's a disappointment for everyone. Uh, that said, I, I do think that the length of the lines are a bit crazy and they really need to get this resolved as soon as they can. But, but who knows if they will or not. So tips for those, Barry, that are about to get on a plane. You know, I, I would say right now, it's, you know, like, it's going to sound cliche, but pack your patience. You know, some of the old rules uh, that we were used to, you, you know, pre-pandemic, I would show up to the airport 60 minutes before a, a domestic flight. Uh, now I'm, I'm showing up two hours. You know, I'm actually flying to California on Sunday. Normally, I would show up two hours in advance. Uh, I, I'm giving myself two and a half hours. And at the same time, it's, it's a really weird situation. You, you know, a couple of weeks back, I flew to London. Uh, I cleared customs in 10 minutes. Right. Wow. And then I had a friend who flew out two days later and took her three hours to clear. So, so you, you never know what's going to go on. 
but the thing I would tell people more than anything else is, you know, you miss your flight. You're going to have to wait probably 24 hours or maybe more than that to get your next flight. So I'd rather arrive early than uh, missing my flight. Great advice. Pack your patience. Barry Choi, travel expert, talking about the long lines both at the airport and at the passport office. Barry, thanks for the time. Be well. No problem. Have a good one. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Justin Trudeau uh, being accused of uh, dropping an F-bomb in Parliament yesterday when he was being quizzed about a military plane flying over the the conversation uh or sorry over the convoy during the uh the the winter protests the freedom protests out there uh that's a no-no and he said no no nothing to see here this is just regular maneuvers and such and uh as and as he was pressed and cornered even more uh allegedly he dropped the f-bomb just as his father uh was alleged to have way back when you might remember uh our own lincoln alexander a part of that discussion as well so uh now after being accused, the uh, pr- the current Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, has sort of channeled his father and using the exact same line that uh, Pierre Trudeau used back in 1971 when being asked uh, questions by the press. Here's what, the ju- here's what Justin Trudeau's reaction was. What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say you move your lips in a particular way? Okay, all right. And here's, we played the Justin Trudeau, or sorry, the Pierre Trudeau version of the exact same clip. This is from 1971. What were you thinking when you moved your lips? What is the nature of your thoughts, gentlemen, when you say fuddle-duddle or something like that? God, you All right, let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. He's with us now. Nelson, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm fine, Scott. Thank you. Your thoughts on Fuddle-Duddle 2022 and Justin Trudeau repeating his uh, far, uh, father's uh, famous lines, uh, appropriate, uh, fitting, um, not so much, or does anybody care? Well, it is amusing. I mean, he was obviously prepared uh, yesterday, so he dug up the line and used it. Um, do people care? Not as much as they did in 1971, which was over 50 years ago, and that's because um, swearing has become more public, more common, and it doesn't have the same shock effect as it once did. The other thing I would say, there are other parallels. I mean, in both cases, uh, these comments I don't think appeared in Hansard because they weren't loud enough to be recorded, but some mm-hmm. members claimed to have heard it. And thus it became a storm. But I don't think the, the public is shocked. In fact, you yourself used the word F-bomb. Does anybody mm-hmm. out there not know what the F stands for? Mm-hmm. Uh, that being said, the day back in the day when Pierre Trudeau uttered this, um, there was a huge uproar about it. As you said, language different today, maybe most not as offended by this. But what about the fact of repeating his famous line, his father's famous line, and what some may see as an arrogant attempt to answer the question? Uh uh, yeah, I'm not sure what... I didn't catch the question. Is it arrogant? No, I, I don't know if it's arrogant. Uh, I, I don't take it that way. As a, Again, I say I just found it more amusing. Uh, there's also the issue, what, what provoked this? You had uh, a conservative MP claiming that the government was spying uh, 
on 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 the so-called freedom convoy, the occupiers in that truck convoy a few months ago in Ottawa, and Trudeau just pointing out, as the Defense Department did, that actually this was a long-time scheduled um, uh, training flight. My own view about that, incidentally, was, well, what's I don't understand what uh, the spying charge constitutes, because after all, uh, it was an illegal occupation, and it's perfectly okay for police, it seems to me, to pick up information. That's why we have police helicopters. That you know, that's why uh, uh, police use human and other forms of intelligence. Uh, it, I was it, talking to Christian Leprec from the Royal Military College, and he was saying that you cannot use uh, military equipment to uh, to serve uh, to to survey uh, domestic a domestic situation. And you know, usually these exercises are not carried out over populated areas. Certainly not areas that are as populated as Ottawa was that weekend. And he thought it was very unusual, especially the previously scheduled training exercise comment. Your thoughts? Uh, my thoughts about that, and incidentally, I think Christian was my former student at the University of Toronto, and he's done wow. very well since then. That's uh, amazing. Yes. Now, look, the um, uh, no one uh, said that I that the charge that the conservatives made was that as if Trudeau had ordered this kind of um, uh, uh, espionage or whatever you want to call it eavesdropping on on the convoy that's that's the way i took it and i thought that's totally ridiculous and we've had a statement from the defense department that that wasn't the case that it was long planned before i believe that in fact the planes involved the plane involved is something that canada is in the process of purchasing now for its uh, special task force unit um so uh, you know it, it's overall it, it is the job of the opposition to hold the government to account. But it's also, I think, it, it, there's some onus also on the opposition to pursue the facts. What is the case here? And I thought that uh, it's quite clear that there wasn't anything untoward here or misuse of military uh, hardware by the government of the day. Do you think this changes or has anything to do with the Emergency Act? I mean, under the Emergency Act, this might be okay, but under normal times, it's not. Uh, that's an interesting question. I think under the Emergencies Act, you probably could have done it, but I'm not sure that um, uh, this plane flying overhead uh, occurred during the 10 days that the Emergencies yeah. Act was in force. It may have been before, in which case it mm -hmm. wouldn't have been appropriate. But under the Emergencies Act, although the government didn't use the military, I suspect it could have, because if you look at the legislation, it was very broad, and the government could do almost anything it wanted, but it then had to justify it. There had to be a committee of parliament investigating it, and then there had to be a broader public inquiry, which we're now engaged in, in also investigating this situation. So... Um, that's an interesting point, but I think it would have been covered by the Emergencies Act, just as other extreme acts could have been, such as freezing bank accounts without a court warrant, which is Nelson, what happened. 
Nelson Wiseman with us, Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. Nelson, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Infectious disease researchers at McMaster University ha- in Hamilton have developed a mathematical model that suggests communities can help reach high levels of COVID-19 immunity by inhaling smaller doses of the virus and building up immunity over time, uh, which is fascinating because as more and more people get Omicron, it seems everybody knows somebody that's had it if they haven't had it themselves, and slowly is our immunity building as a result of that. Let's bring in David J.D. Earn, Professor of Mathematics and Faculty of Science Research Chair in Mathematical Epidemiology at McMaster University and is with us now. David, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am indeed uh, uh, happy to be here. So as more and more people have become exposed to Omicron, many of us, you know, if we haven't had it ourselves, know somebody that has had it. Is Are, are we slowly starting to see that natural immunity? So I think the, the, the effect that we were studying uh, in, the, in the study that, that you were referring to um, is about the value of masks in reducing the amount of virus that you inhale if you happen to be exposed to somebody with COVID. So if you're wearing a mask when you, uh, when you get infected, so it's still possible to be infected while wearing a mask, much less likely, but possible, typically you would inhale fewer virus particles. And early in the pandemic, it was actually suggested that if that happened, then you would get a less severe case and nevertheless become immune. And uh, there's some evidence to support that. And we as mathematicians were looking at what the effect would be on the population if this effect really occurs and if it's a strong effect. And the idea is that if lots of people are actually getting infected, uh, if it, sorry, if, every, if lots of people wear masks and so many people who get infected get infected while wearing a mask, they will then likely, if this effect is correct, have a less severe case and become just as immune as they would if they'd had a severe case. But if the proportion of cases that are mild is much larger, that's good for everybody. So we could build up immunity even if we get infected um, while wearing a mask. So that's the idea. How do you measure what gets through, what doesn't, what is a small or a a low amount of exposure? So that's a good question. And that's that's something that um, for which we don't have the answer yet. So um, the studies that have been done have just been observational, like noting that people who were exposed to large uh, doses, for example, there was this case of early in the pandemic of um, a bunch of people being infected in a choir rehearsal. And those who were closer to people uh, who were infected seemed to get larger, they seemed to get more severe cases. And so that supports this idea. And there have been some studies done with mice um, where showing that mice that were behind a, uh, a barrier that's, that's really a surgical mask um, got less severe infections than those who didn't have that barrier. And so, but we're really not there in terms of quantifying exactly how big the effect is or how big a dose for COVID-19 has to be before you get a mild versus severe 
uh, case. So we just have this suggestive evidence that it's really a potentially very beneficial effect. Would this be exposure before or after vaccinations were available? So that shouldn't matter whether it's before or after vaccination. In either case, a mask should reduce the size of or the, the number of virus particles that make it into your lungs. Um, and in either case, uh, the mask will always reduce the, the probability to get infected at all. But if you do get infected, it should be a smaller dose. And in either case, it should end up being the thinking is that should end up being a, leading to a often to a less severe case. And so if that's the way it goes with lots of people, then wearing masks could end up having a really beneficial effect um, for pressure on the healthcare system and for the number of people who get severe cases. Obviously, if you're masked, you're going to be spreading less germs. Uh, we've seen yep. during the during the pandemic the the uh, incidence of the flu coming down just because probably we were more masked, and if the you know yep. we're we're not spreading COVID nineteen, we're we're not spreading the flu either. And and I understand what you're saying that small doses would maybe not be enough to get you sick, but perhaps enough to trigger immunity. Can you not get that without the mask? Oh, you can. The, the, absolutely. You would, if you get infected without a mask, then uh, you will still develop immunity. That's the normal way. But if you're not wearing a mask, you will, the initial dose of virus that you get will be larger. And that larger dose of virus, the initial infective dose, will tend to lead to a worse, infe- a worse illness. That's the thinking. And so if you... Uh, if you get immunity from a mild case, that's better for you and uh, better for everybody. I, I can certainly understand, you know, obviously, if you're wearing a mask, and that's why we, we've been encouraging that, it, it, yeah. you're going to stop the spread of, of disease. Um, but again, I'm not sure of the correlation between that and immunity or developing other uh, or developing immunity to it, other than you're going to get a smaller dose through the mask. But again, could that not be replicated in scenarios, for example, right now where we're seeing a loosening of the masking regulation? Um, you know, many people are getting sick. This is a different a virus, a different strain. So, you know, not as people, well, it's spreading faster. It's not, uh, it's, it's not as critical. It's not as lethal as what the earlier variants were. Uh, so are we, are we encountering that now as the masking mandates are coming down? Well, again, it's a, it, I, what we're, what, what we're talking about is the value of masking yeah. and reducing the severity of the illness that you might get. Right. So if, uh, Yes, Omicron is overall tends to lead uh, the probability that you get a severe case if you're infected with Omicron is less than if you were infected with the original wild type virus. Mm-hmm. But there are far more, you know, Omicron is far more infectious. And so the you expect more people to get infected and the total number of severe cases can still be very large and can be a very significant burden on the healthcare system. And but it, it is still very beneficial for anybody mm-hmm. to get a less severe case than they would yeah. if they weren't wearing, wearing a mask. Yeah, obviously wearing the mask is the best protection, but what you're saying here is even getting that little bit through that mask is helping your, uh, your immunity to this. Oh, absolutely. And you know, if you don't get infected at all, of course, then you don't suffer at all, and that, that's the best thing. 
But if you do get infected, it's likely to be a much less uh, severe infection, yet give you immunity to the virus. That is the, that's the thinking if this effect is uh, uh, as strong as, as people have thought it might be. David J.D. Earn with us, Professor of Mathematics, Faculty of Science Research Chair in Mathematical Epidemiology, McMaster University. David, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show, coming up right after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am great. How are you? I'm doing good. You sent me a text a while ago, and I forgot all about it, uh, of course. And you asked me to ask you about Bermuda. Well, you're a car guy. You're like you're a you're a vroom vroom guy. So I, I want. No, to I'm not a vroom vroom guy. guy. I'm a car guy. <laughs> Is it the same thing? No. Anyway, go ahead. Well, all right. So this is. A, was this that a toilet flushing? Did no, I just hear a toilet flushing in the background? I, no, I, that I, I have done that before, not on the radio, on a phone call. I forgot one time, but no, I'm at First Ontario Center going to do the Bulldogs game tonight. But um, first game of the second round. But so, as a car guy, not a room room guy, we're going to Bermuda in a few weeks. And nice. it used to be when you were in Bermuda that the thing to do was to rent a moped and drive around. A lot of people know that Bermuda yep. was famous for that. The problem was like scores of people who never rode a motorcycle before getting this, and the (laughs) hospitals were jammed because everybody was getting wiped out because they don't know what they're doing. So they've now switched a little bit. And you can still rent a a moped, I guess, but they've gone to now little mini smart cars and all things, but they're all electric. But I said, forget the electric thing. I can't fit in a smart car. My knees will be up in my ears. I'm six foot five. I can't do that. (laughs) So we have rented an electric Hummer to drive around. And I'm wondering, am I a man for driving an electric Hummer or is an electric Hummer an, like an opposite? Is it an oxymoron that you can't have an electric Hummer? Like, like it doesn't have to, somehow it seems really cool, but at the same time, really not. Are we still talking about an automobile? Yes. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Um, I didn't know, I didn't know they made electric Hummers. So these things Is this a are, custom made vehicle? I, I'm not, I haven't been able to find out because I've, I, I thought they looked really neat, and I thought, hey, I wonder if I could buy one of those and get rid of my car. And since I don't do a lot of driving anymore, just that it looks like it's almost a oversized, glorified golf cart that Hummer has made this special thing of. Uh. But I'm thinking, like, do I get into this thing feeling like I am just testosterone, it's coursing through my veins and pulsating off every corpuscle? Or do maybe I if you're on a golf like course, that? maybe if you're on a golf course, yeah. but I'm not sure the highway or the roadway. See, that's what I know. I, I can't. I haven't decided yet whether I really feel like I have become a real man because I'm going to drive a Hummer. But if, since it's electric, if I have to sort of tone that down and like pop up my collar like it's the 1980s with a polo shirt or something, <laughs> if I dig out your salmon, your salmon shirt. Uh, so, it, is this a full size Hummer? Is this a full size Hummer? You said it was a smaller version no, it's not of full size. It's not full yeah. size. It's, it's but it's it's way larger than the little smart car things that. Like honestly, I could put it in my right. pocket that they want to rent. But right. what do you think? Would you be would you be feeling manly driving an electric mini Hummer? Sure, why not? I mean, if it's going to bother you that much, let your wife drive it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's my mom who I'm going to be driving around. So okay. there's no way she's doing that. Um, that's right. There's your mom behind the wheel of a Hummer. That's a picture right there. 
You'd have to get her a, like one of those uh, the, the, the old helmets they used to wear with the goggles that they'd wear in those little racing cars from Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. Yeah, dress, so dress her up in that. So you, you've obviously rented a car. Where, where are you going to? What are you going to do in the Hummer? Do you know where are you going? Drive, drive driver, oh, yeah. Drive and and look. Try to look really cool. <laughs> and how many are in the Hummer? Is this the whole family? Well, I don't know how well you're how how cool you're going to look driving your mother around, and, oh, and nothing against cool. your mother or yeah. anyone's mother. Oh, no, my mom's cool. She'd be able to pull it off. But it's a two seater Hummer. I just. <laughs> I, so once, many years ago, I went when I was looking to buy my car. I bought a secondhand car because I don't. Again, I don't drive all that much anymore. And there was a used Hummer on the lot. And for a brief moment, I thought, should I come home about it. with a Humvee? And then I realized, no, I actually like sleeping in the bed. Um, and so I decided <laughs> that would not be a wise choice. And that was kind of like the day I came home with a Mustang. But I digress. But but and also like it seems to me that like buying one of those really would be screaming midlife crisis slash lack of self whatever like you just you're trying to prove something and um, well clearly I, you have an attraction to the Hummer clearly oh, you want to get and you want to get behind the big wheel there I'm I'm thinking to myself like in Bermuda if all the other cars are these little mini things like I'm I'm kind of thinking I want to do like a monster truck thing and just drive over a couple of them but I don't think the electric one is going to have the power to do it. Yeah, you know what it kind of reminds me of those things you used to get when you were a kid like the electric little electric plastic cars and that's you used to plug them in they had a battery. Like, yeah, that's <laughs> kind of I think like if I look at all the rentals off and all it is island, that's what they are. That's what they are. And They're really so when you is. Is it really an electric Hummer, or is it really just a toy? You know, like you can get a little Jimmy or a little police car or a little fire truck or whatever, and yours just happens to be modeled after a Hummer. Are Maybe you sure you're going to fit in this? Are you sure you're going to fit in? worn one of those little helmets. That's what I said. The fire truck comes with a hat. Yes, the fire truck will come with a hat and a badge. So you're, the police car comes with a badge. So, uh, but are you sure you're going to fit into this thing? Uh, it, more than I would into the other ones. I've, they, they, they have a video of someone who is six foot two driving quite comfortably, and it's a convertible. So there's always that. So at least my head can pop up, and as long as I don't roll it, I guess I'm fine. Why don't you just go with a moped? Or I guess now you got your mother with you. That's, I just, well, and uh, you know. I, yeah, uh, that would look like Dumb and Dumber the, the, with Jeff Daniels and, and Jim Carrey riding the Hummer into Denver, Colorado, or Boulder, or wherever, holding on. Mm. You imagine my my eighty five year old. I shouldn't say her age. My eighty five year old mom sitting on the back of a moped, holding on to me with the scarf and the goggles and everything. That would be a picture. And sounds hipper than you, by the way. I might add. She is far hipper than me. Yes, absolutely, much cooler. <laughs> All right, tell us about this game today. We've only got about 30 seconds left. What are your thoughts? Is this going to be a sweep? I uh, uh, wouldn't say that. I wouldn't expect so. It's a little uh, interesting that they're tra- they're setting up the scoreboard and stuff here. And just to make sure everything works, they put the shot clock up. And right now it's 55-25 Bulldogs. I, I, I think that may be slightly wow. optimistic because Mississauga is a pretty good team and they've given the Bulldogs a lot of trouble this year. And, I mean, I, Hamilton should win this series. Hamilton should win the championship, quite honestly. But... Uh, they should win the series, but I think this is where they this is where we start to see how they do when there's a little bit of difficulty for them and when they have a little adversity, how do they handle it? Because I expect that in this series they will get some adversity. I'd be shocked if they didn't. Tonight, Hamilton Bulldogs and Mississauga Steelheads at First Ontario Center and Radley's there. Scott, thanks for the time. Have a great show. Thanks, Scott. 
Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.